Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast of the Clayton Yeider Institute of International Trade and Finance at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Carl Pilon, Senior Trade Commissioner at the Consulate General of Canada in Minneapolis, whose territory includes the states of Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota. All right, Carl, thanks so much for joining us today on Trade Matters. Really excited to talk with you about U.S.-Canada trade and USMCA. My pleasure. So you are Senior Trade Commissioner in the Consulate General of Canada in Minneapolis. I'd like to start by having you tell our listeners a little bit more about what your role is and specifically what you do to play a role in the functioning of the U.S.-Canada trading relationship, and especially when it comes to Nebraska as well. Yes. So my role as a trade commissioner and as a manager of a team of trade commissioners is to facilitate trade connections between Canada and the United States. Um, trade commissioners is, I mean, it's a, it's a terminology that not a lot of people are familiar with. When I got the job offer all those years ago and I told my parents that I would be a trade commissioner, they looked at me kind of quizzically and looked and kind of said, oh, what is that? Um, at the end of the day, what we do is is uh, we're matchmakers, right? We try to match up uh, opportunities in the market that we cover, which in our case, uh, the Consulate General in Minneapolis is are the states of Nebraska, Minnesota, Iowa, and uh, the two Dakotas. So we find business opportunities in that territory, and then we try to uh, match them up with Canadian suppliers of goods, services, technologies, IP, etc. Uh, so that's <clears throat> that's the first aspect. Second aspect is um, investment attraction. So uh, in companies, American companies that are located in our territory that are looking to expand internationally uh, to set up production somewhere else for uh, whatever reason, we try to convince them that the best somewhere else they can pick is just next door in Canada. Um, so that's our second role. We also work on trade policy issues, though most of the trade policy work would be done in the capital, so in our case at the embassy in Washington. Sometimes we need to work at uh, the state or even local level to deal with trade policy issues or to conduct advocacy on trade policy issues, whether it be to uh, bring uh, to the attention of local legislators or to uh, <clears throat> uh, senators that are maybe easier to access here than in, in D.C., uh, the Canadian position, so that's something else that we do. Um, but at the end of the day, our key role is really, um, or what underpins, I would say, our role is to uh, contribute to the overall economic prosperity of Canada. So that's that's what we do on a day to, on a day to day basis. There was also the, uh, the the Nebraska angle. Now, as I said, Nebraska is one of the five states that we cover. So. Our role, and it's a bit challenging for us. I mean, it's true for, for all of those that do what we do. And I'm thinking about, for instance, my counterparts from other countries who may only be posted, the, the trade office, for instance, for one of my previous postings, if I may go anecdotal for a second, one of my previous postings was Israel. And they had one trade office located in Toronto, and somehow they had to cover all of Canada out of one trade team that was located in Toronto which is kind of quite a challenge considering that we, when I was posted to Israel, we had to cover a country that's the, same, the size of New Jersey, which is a bit easier when you're located in one city than covering all of Canada out of uh, one city. So for us, the challenge is to adequately cover the five states that are part of our territory, which include Nebraska. And um, actually, I was supposed to be in Nebraska for my first official work trip two weeks ago, but obviously something happened 
that uh, threw a spanner into works. So uh, the visits was postponed uh, once um, all the dust settles and we can go back to normal operations. Um, I've been to Nebraska before uh, because it just so happens that my uh, previous partner was from Western Nebraska and uh, he had family scattered all over the state. So I've, I've probably crisscrossed Nebraska more than the average Canadian, but that was not in an official capacity. Now, our work uh, when it comes to uh, Nebraska would be to get, again, Canadian companies to do business in the state. Uh, what's interesting, when I was reviewing the statistics of our trade with that, that specific state uh, this morning, and it's actually pretty diverse in both directions. A lot of times our trade, especially, uh, well, it depends, but our trade with specific states will be focused on one specific sector. Like if I look at uh, just one example, North Dakota, uh, it's a lot of energy-related products specifically. But for Nebraska, uh, our sales to Nebraska are in uh, ag, chemicals, equipment and machinery, forest products. It's all over there. a little bit of everything. And our imports for Nebraska, which are actually $1.6 billion U.S. dollars worth. So Nebraska has a very big trade surplus for Canada, about $700 million. So trading with Canada is actually to Nebraska's benefit these days, which is good. You know, trade brings benefit to both. Uh, and there's more than just looking at the balance of trade at the end of the day. It's if, if we trade with uh, with each other is because both parties find something good out of it. But Nebraska's sales to Canada, again, they're in ag products, they're in chemicals, energy products, equipment, machinery, um, in the transportation sector. So it's a, a, a little bit of everything. So it's very diverse. And that's one of the challenges that we have being posted here in Minneapolis is um, communicating to Canadian companies that there's more to the upper Midwest than just like agriculture because they're, we're dealing with very diverse economies uh, that produce and buy a whole bunch of different products and services and we have to think beyond what people may have as the stereotype of the, like the upper Midwest is basically uh, corn and wheat and uh, hog production. There's a whole lot more to it than that. So that's a very nice segue into a question I'd like to ask you to follow up on all that, which is what would you say are mm -hmm. the top, you know, top one or two questions that you get from Canadians who might be seeking to um, do business in Nebraska? Well, for us, usually the questions we get from Canadian companies, the easiest ones that we deal with is, is there a market for my product? That's usually, and again, that's pretty, that's true pretty much the world over. I've been on, on five different assignments, and that's always kind of the first question that we get is, I'm, I, I'm making X, and can we find a market for X in your territory? Um, that's always what they're looking for. Now, sometimes they've done a bit of their research, and they already know that there's a market. Then in which case, the, the question turns to, can you put me in touch with the right buyers, distributors, agents, what have you, that's going to make me, that's going to, that will either help me sell my product or they will buy my product or my service. So I did, I, th those are the key questions. Now, um, state-specific, oftentimes it's what's currently going on in, in this case, in this instance in Nebraska, um, that would offer opportunities for what it is that I'm manufacturing, that I'm producing, that I'm coding uh, in Canada. Now, also, in certain cases, because we all, one of the areas, and if I may go back to what trade commissioners do, uh, it used to be way back when that 
trade commissioners focus solely on trade in goods. But over time, as I explained earlier, the scope of what we do has grown. And we do, especially when we're in those countries where we're posted that are developed economies, we do a lot of uh, work in science, technology, and innovation. So a lot of times, questions that, are, that we get is um, we're looking for someone that's doing research in that specific area. And we know that there should be people that do research in that area in this let's say in this instance in Nebraska, we were like, we, could you put, to, put us in touch with the right people? So again, it goes back to our role as matchmakers is developing networks of people across all sectors of the economy so that when we get asked to make those matches, we know directly where to go to to find the right connection. So you're really on the front lines of making trade happen is the way I'm thinking about how you describe your role Um, And I'd like to ask another question along those lines. So you mentioned engagement with state and local level policymakers as part of your role as trade commissioner. Um, And I know you haven't been here to Nebraska yet in in an official capacity, but um, that will happen at some point. And um, I wonder um, what, you know, what is your your message to them? I think it's been really interesting to see um, more connections among policymakers at state and local levels with perhaps their counterparts in other countries or individuals like you who are posted, you know, um, abroad. And so I'm wondering, what's, what is your message or what do you think it will be to um, policymakers um, at the state and local level here? When we speak with, with policy, as you say, policymakers uh, locally, we emphasize the fact that at the end of the day, trade is good. It's, it's a benefit to uh, both parties both parties engage in, in, in exchange of goods, services, and all that because they have developed a specialty in one area and they are better at making X than the other party, which is better at making Y. But then if they exchange what it is that they're better at, both parties then acquire a little bit of what they're not as good at. And so both parties gain. I mean, to make a, a, um, a kind of a, 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 an illustration out of that, in where I'm from, in Quebec, we're pretty good at making maple syrup. Quebec produces 72% of the maple syrup on the planet. Now, obviously, Florida doesn't make any maple syrup, but Florida makes oranges. And there might be a few Floridians that would like to have some maple syrup, and there might be some Quebecers that would like to have some maple syrup from some oranges. So if we put, in again, in the abstract, um, Trade is a way for Quebecers that they can transform their maple syrup into oranges and for Floridians to transform their oranges into maple syrup. At the end of the day, this is what trade is. Various areas of various specialties and in economic advantages, and by putting those areas in touch with one another, they can benefit from each other's specialties and expertise and ability to produce X, Y, and Z so that everybody's standard of living and quality of life increases. That is why we constantly emphasize the fact that trade is a positive good for everyone. So when we talk to local politicians, this is the message that we emphasize because sometimes, and especially, I mean, I would say over the last maybe 10 years, and it's been true in, in many countries across Europe, it's been true here in the United States um, and elsewhere, there's been a, uh, an undercurrent of... of um, not having as positive an outlook on international trade. Um, so what we try to communicate uh, are the benefits to maintaining the free flow of goods services 
because it's ultimately to everybody's advantage to do so. So following up on that point, really our key message. Uh, okay. <clears throat> so following up on your key message there that that trade is good. I'd like to turn now to the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement or Canada-U.S.-Mexico yeah. agreement, as it's known, um, re- yeah. referred to in Canada. Um, <laughs> so uh, as our listeners know, the North American Free Trade Agreement was renegotiated um, and that concluded back toward the end of 2018. And we are now at a point yeah. where all three countries have ratified it. But I want to talk first a little bit about how public perception of trade and NAFTA and USMCA or CUS. Uh, MA might be the same or different in Canada versus um, the United States. So first, I'd like to just quote from the government of Canada's economic impact assessment of the USMCA. And um, the piece I'm quoting from there says, quote, while overall NAFTA has been a positive economic driver, discontent with the effects of globalization and job dislocation has led some, in particular in the United States, to question the benefits of trade liberalization and call for increased trade protectionism, unquote. So my question for you is that this seems to imply that discontent with globalization and trade, and sometimes those two things get conflated. They're not exactly the same, but they are often wrapped up in the same conversation. So um, my question is, do you think that any public discontent with trade and what it may or may not be responsible for in terms of jobless dislocation is stronger in the U.S. than in Canada or not? Um, from my own standpoint, my Canadian point of view, I would tend to say yes, that it was stronger in the United States for domestic reasons. Uh, obviously, I mean, all, at the end of the day, there's an old aphorism, I'm sure you know it, all politics is local, right? So politicians will reflect their local, whatever happens in their own constituencies. So for domestic uh, reasons, the issues surrounding swirling around uh, trade uh, have gone in one direction in the United States, and they may not necessarily have gone in the same direction in Canada. Uh, back in the uh, 1980s, when the, the, the predecessor to uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement was negotiated, which so the predecessor was an agreement between Canada and the United States, it led to basically having an entire federal election in Canada in 1988 uh, being run basically solely over the issue of free trade in the United States. Back then in Canada, you had a very strong uh, position that was not, or uh, let me rephrase that, there was a very large proportion of the population uh, big enough to basically carry uh, carry an entire uh, election over. Um, But that was not in favor of free trade with the United States. Um, People feared that that the Canadian economy would be flooded with American goods, that Canadian businesses and and, uh, manufacturing plants and and the like would would close from, um, from coast to coast. So there was a lot of worry. Uh, and obviously politicians need to respond to those concerns. So as I said, the, uh, the election basically turned into a referendum on the free trade agreement that had been negotiated by the, uh, uh, the government of the, uh, of the time, that was at the time led by uh, Brian Mulroney. Um, and ultimately, the, uh, the party that was in favor of free trade that had been negotiated the, uh, the, uh, the agreement, the uh, conservatives, uh, at the time the progressive conservatives, were re-elected. So in 1988, after the election, Canada and the United States signed the agreement. And after a few years, Canadians started to realize that, lo and behold, the world hadn't ended. 
And then um, it was uh, agreed upon by the two parties, the United and Canada, for various reasons, that we should bring Mexico into the fold, and which led to the Canada-U.S. agreement becoming NAFTA in 1994. And again, Canadians realized that you bring in Mexico came in, and look at look at that, the economy is doing okay. Like, yeah, we're doing all right. Um, so. There's we over like if we fast forward from the mid 90s when NAFTA was uh, ratified up until now, there has really been a sea change in the um, the political mindset across Canada, across the entire political spectrum with regards to trade. And I think the best uh, illustration of that is that within the last uh, few years, Canada has signed two, well actually now three major trade agreements, one with the European Union, what we call the uh, colloquially CETA, the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement. Then it signed one with several Asian countries and a couple of, um, of countries from the Americas, the CPTPP, the uh, Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, and we signed what we call, as you alluded to, COSMA, USMCA here in the, in the U.S. All those agreements are with very big economies. I mean, Canada signing an agreement with the EU. The EU is a market of 500 million consumers. Canada is 38 million, 37. The CPTPP is equally big, though the economies are smaller, but the population and all that is certainly very sizable. When we look at all those trade agreements that were negotiated, all of that took place, basically, it's background business. That's The government does it. People don't really pay attention to it. Elections aren't run on it. It just kind of happens. And there's no party that's running at the federal level that would be against those agreements. They might want like this tweaked one way and another party would want that other clause to be tweaked in a separate direction, but in the main, everybody agrees that having uh, multilateral frameworks to organize the flow of trade and goods, services and the like is a positive good. And I'd like to compare that, that to another one of those countries where I've been posted, which was Sweden. Sweden and Canada find themselves in the same situation. They're small economies who cannot rely solely on their domestic market to provide the prosperity to their citizens. They need to be to engage in international trade for their companies to grow, um, to generate, you know, to generate wealth. So what I was in, in on posting in Sweden was when. Canada and the EU were negotiating, and once in a while, as the the, uh, the head of the trade section in Stockholm, I would get communications from our uh, trade policy team at the uh, our mission to the EU, asking me, well, what's the Swedish government's position on this and that? And it was always there. If it was about trade, it was they're in favor of it. They can't wait until that agreement is signed. Like, let's get down to business. I had a much easier time talking trade with my Swedish counterparts when I was in, in Stockholm than my colleagues that were in other European countries where the, the approach to trade is not as positive. So Canada is, is in the same in that, that same position. We rely upon global markets for our prosperity. Uh, so we need to uh, secure access to those markets through uh, frameworks that are out there in the open. Um, that everybody can can um, can easily understand, um, and that are uh, that provide a certain amount of of, of, of um, confidence to the business community that uh, the way that they choose to operate um, 
the framework within which you operate will remain consistent and, um, and they have confidence that that will remain for the foreseeable future. So that attitude now uh, transpires across the political, political spectrum and also within the overall the, the Canadian population. As I said, we ran, I mean, there's been several elections over the last, I'd say, since the early 2000s, and trade has never been an issue. It just as I said, it's part of like the machinery agreement. People know that those agreements are being negotiated, and once it's done, people are happy, but they don't focus upon on, on it. It just happens. Thank you for that. It's a that, very long answer to your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's important historical context, especially for for myself as a as a American listener and others of our listeners. That historical context about mm-hmm. the you know the initial U.S. Canada FTA was actually negotiated on the U.S. Yeah. side. That negotiation was led by Clayton Yider, the namesake of our, of our institute here, which was a significant achievement, of oh, course, okay. um, for him. Uh, and for all of us. And so um, I think it's interesting that you, you noted that there was some nervousness perhaps among the Canadian public when the U.S.-Canada FTA was um, about to come into force. But it sounds like attitudes have evolved um, based on what you've described from that point to where trade is relatively accepted, broadly speaking, among the public. Mm-hmm. And you described it as the machinery of what the government is doing to secure access to global markets for a, a smaller economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, do you have um, a perspective on how that um, shift in attitude took place? Did people just sort of realize over time as this agreement took effect, the U.S.-Canada FTA and then NAFTA after that, um, that they were able to just see and feel those benefits? Or was there some messaging taking place um, by the government to its own people to, to bring that opinion along? Or how, did, how would you say that that actually happened? I think it was mainly because, um, I mean, obviously there were some shifts in the in the overall structure of the economy. Um, like some sectors faced with competition that they hadn't been expected, uh, uh, that they hadn't been used to, suddenly found themselves not as competitive as they thought. So it wasn't necessarily easy across the board, but overall people saw that the Canadian economy was doing well that the, uh, the catastrophe that had been foretold by some was not uh, materializing and that in the main, um, their situ- the, the overall situation of the country as well as they, their own was improving. So I think that did a lot to assuage people's, those people that had been worried about it, to assuage their concerns that free trade was wrecked uh, the Canadian economy and turn turn Canada and basically just a supplier of raw materials to the U.S. This, this is not what happened in any way, shape, or form. Um, so I think just by the fact that the the country the country situation just improved uh, year on year made people realize that those agreements actually have value to them. It's a positive good. Uh, there was no. And again, now we're going we're going back many many years, so my recollection might be faulty, but I don't remember necessarily there have been massive kind of advertising campaigns or anything of the sort to let people know that, well, we're doing this for your own good, so you better start liking it. I don't think that's how it happened. It just kind of um, or it, it was just an organic change towards by people looking at what was going on uh, in there around them. 
Okay, so shifting gears to the the current agreement that we have before us, which is the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or CUSMA in Canada, as it's referred to there. (laughs) Um, So on March 13th, just not too long ago at all, Canada was the last of the three partner countries, U.S., Mexico, and Canada, um, to ratify the agreement. Now, the Trump administration here in the U.S. is pushing for this agreement to take effect on June 1st, but there's still there still are issues to work out. And I want to just remind our listeners of a few items here. Um, auto rules of origin are a major facet of this uh, agreement. So just as a quick reminder, that includes a requirement that 75 percent of the content of a motor vehicle must be made with parts sourced in North America in order for that vehicle to receive preferential treatment under the agreement. There's also a labor value content rule, as you know very well, that approximately 40% of the content of a light vehicle should be made by workers making $16 an hour, again, for that vehicle to receive preferential treatment. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic also introduces a lot of uncertainty, of course, um, into to everyone's to life and into trade. And so in light of all of these issues, there have been some calls among um those in the U.S. Senate, for example, U.S. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley has urged the administration to reconsider this June 1st time frame, as has the auto industry. A major auto industry grouping released a statement saying that the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted their supply chains and, and have also noted that the three countries involved in USMCA still have to issue draft regulations on the uniform automotive rules of origin so that you know each country has the co- a common understanding of how to implement these auto rules of origin um, Rules. So two questions for you. One is, do you think that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to slow down or should slow down the target entry into force date of the USMCA, which is June 1st? And secondly, can you tell us a little bit about where Canada's efforts stand on drafting the rules to comply with um, uh, the new auto rules of origin in the USMCA? Yeah, well, first, first, I'll take a step back from those two questions just to illustrate how important that whole thing, the agreement itself is. So um, the, the uh, ratification process in Canada uh, involves several steps as in all other countries. But for us, the process starts with the government of the day uh, bringing the agreement in front of the House of Commons and then the House of Commons needs to study it, review it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that had been done last spring, in the spring of 2019. Uh, and then they made it all the way, almost all the way to the vote. And then the House rose for the summer recess, and then we had an election in the fall. Um, when there's an election, everything that was on the order paper basically vanishes into thin air. And when the new government reconvenes, they get to start the process all over again. For us, we re-elected the Liberals, though this time they're in a minority situation in the House. But that then the liberals could pick up where they left off. But it does that did mean though that the entire ratification process had to start from the top. So it needed to bring to be brought back to the house again, uh, the uh, the uh, implementation legislation, which was done. Uh, President Trump signed ratification, the U.S. ratification on the 28th. The just like pure coincidence, uh, the uh, the government brought. The legislation in front of the House in, in, in Ottawa on the 29th. Now, on March 13th, the very last thing that the House did before it rose because of the pandemic was to vote to ratify the uh, USMCA or CUSPA, and it was a unanimous vote in the House. So that is that highlights the importance that Canadian politicians of all stripes put on the agreement. 
And immediately after, in our process, if any legislation needs to be passed in the House, and then it, it's passed in the Senate, and then it's signed for, I'm sure your American listeners are probably going to have a wry smile at that, at, at that, but it needs to be sent for royal assent. So it means that the House votes on it, the Senate votes on it, then it goes in, on, on the Governor General's desk, and then the Governor General signs it. All of those steps took place in one half day on March 13. Usually it takes a few days, if only because the Governor General has business of her own and she, might, she doesn't necessarily sign on the day that it's voted on. That was so important that we, want all, we wanted all of that to be done before Parliament basically rose because of the pandemic. So that being said, with regards to the implementation process and to go back to your first question, the impact of the COVID pandemic on it, um, I mean, regulations are written at the end of the day by bureaucrats. And just speaking from my own point of view as one of those bureaucrats and knowing what's going on in Ottawa, uh, the province of Ontario is now shut down uh, in that all non-essential businesses are closed. People have to stay at home. Uh, that includes um, bureaucrats that live in Ottawa because Ottawa is in Ontario. Uh, so basically the entire federal government now is working from home and teleworking. Uh, so just logistically, it introduces challenges that obviously would not be there otherwise. Uh, our trade policy colleagues are caught up in the same stay-at-home rules and regulations that everybody else is. So it's hard to tell at the end of the day the impact that it will have on ensuring that those regulations are in, in, in place um, by June 1st. Uh, I do not know what the official uh, uh, position for the government of Canada is with regards to the implementation because right now we're everybody is kind of um, flying blind because of the pandemic so it would be kind of uh, I think really foolhardy of me to uh, pronounce make any kind of pronouncement considering where I'm sitting uh, here in Minnesota as to uh, how it will impact now the question should it have an impact it, it one would hope that it wouldn't will it have an impact it might. Uh, it's, it's, we find ourselves in a very uh, challenging environment right now. So um, I, it's, it's a hard question to answer, I'm afraid, and I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't think I can provide you with the right answer for it. Now, the, the, the question as to where we, um, we stand on drafting the rules, again, the rule, I mean, we've known the, the, the concept of the agreement has been known for a while, and the regulations implementing the agreement have been in the drafting process basically in parallel. The, the process did not start the day that the agreement was ratified. So those rules and regulations are probably very far into the process of being drafted, just so that on the day that the, that the, uh, the agreement does come into effect, that everything is ready at the same time. That would be my assumption. Okay. Thank you for that. One more question on how the pandemic might be affecting trade, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, one statistic that I have seen is that over $2 billion worth of goods and services cross the U.S.-Canada border every day. Um, we know we have a really yeah. strong yeah. trade relationship. That's a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. we also know that the U.S. and Canada have suspended all non-essential traffic across our shared border in an effort to control yeah. the spread of this virus. And officials have said that this will not affect trade. Um, but what I'm wondering about is the impact on trade from other standpoints, for example, restricting business and personal travel that can't happen now between our two countries. For example, if there's a Canadian or U.S. business person that wants to travel to the other country to supply services, that's an export. Um, how, do you, how are you thinking about that right now? It, 
um, unfortunately, that gets caught into the net. Uh, when uh, Canada and the U.S. agreed to that uh, border closure, with the exception, the exception is basically shipment of goods so that the supply chains can keep on operating uh, so that the economies don't grind to a halt. Um, what's important if, we, if I put myself in, in Canadian shoes um, in Canada is uh, earlier I, I, I kind of uh, amusingly referred to trading oranges and maple syrup. Having access to produce that because it's still winter back home uh, arrives from California is very important. We need to let that go through. Uh, but there are other types of agreements that right now uh, or, or other types of trade relationships that unfortunately need to, and it's unfortunate, and I say that as a trade commissioner whose role it is to facilitate trade, but that those trade relationships need to take a back seat. Um, if you're not trying to, basically, if someone is not crossing the border with something that the other country needs in, in the back, whether it's a semi or another way of shipping stuff, then that person is probably is going to be stopped at the border. Um, it, it, we have reached that stage. It is unfortunate, and it will create challenges. But um, in the main, the flow of goods um, will continue. Now, if there are Canadians on the American side and Americans on the Canadian side who had temporarily relocated to deliver services, well, they can keep on delivering that service uh, because chances are they won't be able to go back home. Though there's an exception for citizens of either country to actually go back to their country of origin. Um, but then there are issues with regards to, and now we're entering into the public health measures with regards to when you travel, then you have to self-quarantine and all of that. But people can still move up to a point. Uh, but the important, the very important key point with regards to the border closure was that the flow of goods not stop because it's essential for both countries that the flow of goods not stop. I mean, there's a lot of American food that's produced with Canadian ingredients and vice versa. We can't, we can't have that stop overnight. Okay. It's critical. Okay. Thank you. One more question for you on uh, just a bigger picture question on Canada's overall approach to trade. You'd already mentioned some of the other free trade agreements that Canada has enforced, for example, the Canada-EU agreement and the CPTPP. Um, I've also read recently that the Japan, in particular, is leading a push within the CPTPP to include more Asian economies in that agreement, like Thailand, Taiwan, Indonesia, the Philippines, um, in an attempt to diver- diversify supply chains away from China. And I'm wondering, even even before the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, started, has Canada's approach to diversifying its trading relationships changed recently, uh, even before this pandemic began? It, uh, Canada's trade, uh, uh, international trade approach, for as long as I've been aware of it, and before that, has always been to diversify. Canada is blessed with having the world's most affluent and uh, uh, market next door, which means that all of our trade, that's kind of an exaggeration, but at 75 to 80% of our trade is with the United States. So trade ministers, international trade, international commerce, whatever title they've had over the last 50, 60 years of whatever political stripe, have always had as their, as their goal to diversify Canadian exports. And year in, year out, when the numbers came out, come out, it's always between 
again, between 75, 80, 82% of Canada's exports go to the U.S. You can't fight geography. The United States will always be next door to Canada. It's always going to be easier, cheaper, uh, for all kinds of reasons for Canadian companies to sell to the American market. It's even, in many cases, easier for a Canadian company to sell to the American state next door than to sell to a Canadian Canadian province that's across the country. Companies in Vancouver, B.C. probably have bigger trade trade connections with the state of Washington than with Newfoundland that's halfway across the lake. It's on the other side of the uh, the country. Same with companies in New England and trading with companies in Quebec and in the the Maritimes and companies in the prairies trading with with, uh, the, the upper Midwest. So it's just natural that Canada would trade with the United States. So diversifying has always been the goal of our international trade approach is to get Canadian companies to look at the rest of the planet. And those trade agreements have been signed over the last few decades with that in mind. Yes, we now have the, well, we now, since the mid-80s, We've had disagreements with the United States and then Mexico, but we've signed agreements with Israel and Jordan. We've signed agreements with, um, we have agreements with uh, Colombia and Peru. We have agreements with the, through the CPT, CPTPP with Japan and several Asian and uh, Latin American economies. We have agreements with CETA. Uh, so always with the goal of offering more and more market opportunities to Canadian companies because though it is a blessing to have the world's most affluent market next door. Uh, when things go bad with that market, it means that things are going to go bad for Canada. So it's an insurance policy as well to have a more diverse client base. If you rely upon one single client and then that client, for whatever reason, decides not to buy your product anymore, you're going to have problems. So it's to your ultimate benefit as a producer to have as many clients as possible so that anything affecting one specific client doesn't take your business down. So for us, that another member in a a multilateral agreement would seek to bring in more members. We'd look that, we'd look that with like with, uh, we'd welcome that, that approach because again, the, the overall, the position for the Canadian body politic is to be in favor of trade. So the more the merrier in that regard. Thank you for that, Carl. So it sounds like, you know, you're saying that geography is almost like a magnet for, for trade. That's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be a natural foundation for trade between the U.S. and Canada because of our geography and other things like shared business culture as well. Um, and that's, I think, why it's yeah, important for us yeah. to understand each other's sides so well and understand, you know, for us mm-hmm. to understand the Canadian point of view and vice versa. And thank you for doing that for us today. You've, I've learned a lot from you in this conversation that we've had, and I, I know our listeners will too. Um, I have one last question for you, which is the same one that I ask every guest on this show, and that is, what have you read lately about trade? Anything, a book, an article, a report that has been particularly striking to you? That's, that's a good question. Um, because over the last few few days, everything that I've been reading has been focused on one topic and one topic alone, um, which is not trade-related but does have an impact on trade. What I would say is that, again, the, the emphasizing of import, the importance of, of global connections and what I've been reading uh, that's, that's tangential to trade is the fact that even though... Um, 
and I did that to, it was someone I believe it was on uh, on a writer on if I'm not mistaken on Slate making the argument on reopening economies is that the today's the, the global economies are so interconnected that even if country X decides from one day to the next that uh, you know down the torpedoes we're reop like we're going back in business if the rest of the the economies with which it's connected aren't following suit basically countries cannot necessarily do it on their own anymore because the web of connections is so strong that if your supplier next door in the country next door hasn't resumed operating even though you want to start your plant you're not going to get your parts because they're not being produced these days because the country next door is under quarantine so something that at the end of the day is like obviously a health a, uh, a pandemic in the abstract is not a trade issue but it, it affects everything else and because now uh, the supply chains of most companies have grown so intricate and complex something that's happening a policy decision that's being made 6,000 kilometers from where you are will have an impact upon whether or not you can produce your sofa in your plant because you can't get the fabric that you use, you use to upholster your sofa because the company that produces that fabric, they're still under a shelter-in-place uh, uh, rule. So it was interesting that to read that because of those interconnections, local policy decisions end up having an impact hundreds of miles away because of the interconnectedness that's been brought about by trade. Yes, I think this... I th yes, I think this, you know, pandemic has certainly showed us a lot about the sensitivity of our supply chain to public health threats. And so we're all learning mm -hmm. and seeing that connection um, in a very real way right now. Um, Carl Pilon, thank you so much for joining us today on Trade Matters. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Bryce Duskett and Brianne Wolf for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yeiterinstitute at unl.edu. That's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu. Or follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore Yeiter. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. 